Welcome to another episode of Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. Today's guest is Robert Verkirk, PhD. Robert is an internationally acclaimed scientist with over 25 years' experience in the field of agricultural and healthcare sustainability, having worked in academia, industry, and the not-for-profit sector. He's worked extensively in Africa, Asia, Australia, the Americas, as well as Europe. And after leaving Imperial College London in 2002, he founded the Alliance for Natural Health, which is headed since. His background as a scientist, campaigner and visionary hold him in good stead for his dual role as executive and scientific director of ANH International, as well as its regional European office. The Alliance for Natural Health is part of an international organisation dedicated to promoting sustainable health and freedom of choice in healthcare through good science and good law. They protect the right of natural health practitioners to practice and the right of consumers to choose the healthcare options they prefer. Since 1992, they have worked to shift the medical paradigm from an exclusive focus on surgery, drugs and other conventional techniques to an integrative approach incorporating functional foods, dietary supplements and lifestyle changes. They believe this is the way to improve health and extend lives while reducing the cost of healthcare back to a sustainable level. Robert, how are you? I'm very well, John. Um, great to be on your programme. Well, it's a great pleasure. I've been following your work for quite some time now, and I have to say my interest in what it is you promote has been mounting. You're part of the Alliance for Natural Health International. Can you tell us a little bit of background about yourself, Robert, and of course about the Alliance also? Yes, um, my background is I was a research scientist at Imperial College London um, involved in sustainable agriculture and I gradually became somewhat disillusioned with the way in which um, research was moving, that there was a more and more a corporate agenda and for many people it was becoming harder and harder to get money that was really going to be funding research that made a great difference to the, to the planet and particularly looking at um, the kind of ways in which uh, our society seemed to put environmental health and human health to a very low priority unless there was money to be made out of it. Mm -hmm. And I also started to see this very clear association between the way in which the corporate um, oligopolies, if you like, an increasingly powerful group of a small number of companies, whether they were um, agrochemical companies, biotech companies, or pharmaceutical companies, were controlling the agenda. And the, the way in which these companies had managed, um, if you like, the development of agriculture is very similar to the way in which it was managing human health. And Slowly but surely, if you look at human health care, we have got used to basically popping a pill to try and get healthy. And the irony is that those pills that are being popped are essentially new-to-nature chemicals. They're chemicals that have not been associated with human evolution, just as we get used to the fact that most of the crops that we eat now are treated with um, pesticides that are also new to nature and have 
a whole series of uh, negative impacts on, on the environment around us. And trying to, my primary um, function in terms of my research background was looking at the interactions within ecological systems and how you can manage an agroecosystem with minimum and very often no zero pesticide inputs. And when you look at the equivalent in, in the health side, you immediately see the this very diverse and uh, um, interesting complementary and alternative medicine health group, which is being challenged left, right and centre by a whole range of governments um, and corporations working side by side, um, trade associations that are often very dominated by pharmaceutical interests. And what I felt was lacking back in 2002, particularly with the threat of one particular European directive that was... Um, about to be voted through in the European Parliament was a, a more scientifically based and legally based campaign that really dealt with the problem at, at source, if you like, rather than just saying, hey guys, here is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, that was the stimulus to establish the Alliance for Natural Health, which I founded back in 2002. And obviously things have been going really well for you guys ever since and the message has been, I suppose, probably slow burning initially, but it is getting out there as more and more people, I think, become aware through their own experiences in life of, well, how, how much bad food and bad knowledge and bad information and bad science, how much badness there is out there. Well, John, I'll stop you there and say things going well for us. Um, I, of course, um, the best thing that could happen to us is that um, we were no longer needed and uh, we could get on with our other lives. Mm -hmm. um, things have been going rather horrendously for us in the sense that uh, the problems just keep on mounting um, and we are firefighting left, right and center. I mean, right, right now, for example, one of the big daily battles we're having is trying to keep herbal products on the market because of the way in which European regulators are, are saying that they have a new regulatory regime for a certain type of herbal medicinal product that is almost impossible for small companies to, to get natural products through this registration system and uh, products that have been previously sold as, as food supplements and now that, that contain herbs are increasingly under threat. And um, whether it's the Irish authorities, the Irish Medi Medicines Board or the um, UK equivalent, the MHRA or any of the other European reg regulators, they're all working in a very joined up manner. And um, many of the herbal products that have been used for millennia, particularly the ones that have been associated with very long-standing st traditions of medicine, such as Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine, are now very seriously under threat. So, um, and, and at the same time, if you look at the GMO area, genetically modified organisms, Europe has, if you, if you like, been seen externally as being very successful in preventing widespread usage of GMOs in the human food supply. And the primary way in which that's happened is the requirement for compulsory labeling of GMOs um, that, that, that are bought in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And this has stopped something like the 50 biggest 
suppliers of, uh, of food from regularly introducing GMOs to those foods because people simply don't buy it when it says this food contains GMOs. Um, however, there is a major and continuous pressure from um, the highest levels within the EU, both in the European Commission and then the European Food Safety Authority, the um, EFSA, to basically green light uh, GMOs and then to have a very active publicity machine that is trying to get the European public to say, hey guys, if you want to still have cheap food, you need to take the brakes off, off your resistance to GMOs and let it in. And while that's been happening, very quietly, 85% of all compounded animal feed has been GMO anyway. So if you recognize the fact that when animals are given GMOs, such as you know pigs and cows and chickens, that, that GMOs have the possibility of migrating through the gut back into the animal tissues or the milk or the eggs, then we are already being exposed to GMOs in that way. Um, and they are really gearing up to, to um, getting GMOs into, into the main food supply as well. So from, from every side, this, this pressure just continues. And while there have been you know hundreds of thousands of European consumers and, and citizens and even members of the European Parliament working with us, what we tend to find is that people, after a few years of active campaigning, can become very fatigued by the issues because they go on and on. And um, the best thing that can happen is just getting new blood in. You know, it's like, it literally is like fighting a war where you need new troops all the time to refresh your, your, um, your defense system so that you can carry on dealing with, with this continuous problem. Indeed. And the one thing that a lot of people listening now will be wondering is, why is such a war necessary? Because surely what's good for our health should be what's promoted in, I suppose, the mainstream and by governments and bodies and organizations and that kind of thing. And the mainstream media is constantly pushing at us that GMOs are good. They're the savior of the human race because it's cheap food and it's, it's going to solve all the problems in third world Africa, for example, with famine, etc., etc., so, um, I mean, why is GMO so bad for us, Robert? Well, the, the, what we hear in the media is just basically spin from the, the biotech companies and governments. And we've got to recognize the fact that the governments and these corporations now work very, very closely together on a particular agenda that doesn't necessarily put human health first. Um, to, to give you an idea, I mean, we, we published about uh, three weeks ago some statistics looking at the um, risks to hu human beings, health hazards from a whole wide range of things, from foods to hospitals to motor vehicles um, to lightning strikes and to food supplements and herbal products. And there yeah. is no doubt that food supplements and herbal products, the things that we use for natural health care, are the very safest things that we put into our mouths by several hundred times. And they are um, many hundreds of thousands of times safer than, the, 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 than uh, pharmaceutical medicines or, in fact, a stay in hospital. And using UK data, 
um, the commissioned research demonstrated that um, having a, a stay as an inpatient in a UK hospital carried the same risk as being deployed um, as a member of the British military to um, Iraq or Afghanistan, just to put it into perspective. Incredible. So, and, and, and at the same time, what we're seeing is this, essentially the same risk assessment system being applied from the pharmaceutical model back onto natural health care products such as herbal products and food supplements where the actual risks that we see if you look at the empirical evidence are so dramatically different and as I said they are substantially safer than food so we should be dealing with a very light regulatory regime but we're dealing with a very heavy regulatory regime the only plausible explanation for that is actually because people's continuing demand for natural health care products is actually taking market share away from from drugs you know if people decide that um, for example diabetes and obesity which are now viewed as the biggest areas for the drug companies to focus on now that they're in the process of losing some 70% of their revenues um, on the major blockbuster drugs. So they're now focusing these new areas. If you can manage those two major sources of chronic disease um, by using natural health care, such as diet and lifestyle and taking herbs and food supplements, you don't need drugs. And um, if you do that, you really... Uh, destroy the primary strategy that these pharmaceutical companies are using to maintain themselves. Um, as far as the biotech companies are concerned, they have been trying to use this argument that, that if, you, if you like, pulls on our heartstrings, that we need GMOs to feed, to, to alleviate poverty in developing countries. Yeah. And um, if you like, the Western world has, has managed, certainly the, the citizens in the Western world have, have been dealing with a huge sense of guilt over this extreme chasm that exists in the quality of life and, um, and, and it's really more to do with the standard of living actually than the quality of life because you see people with very little money actually being surprisingly happy. It shows you that money is really not the source of happiness. But there is nevertheless a big gap in terms of um, standard of living, access to food, um, quality of food, access to healthcare. And um, the, the, this idea that, that GMOs can solve this problem is actually not supported by empirical data. And there's one, been one very major um, United Nations study that was uh, carried out over five years, was completed in 2008. It's the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge in Science, Technology and Development. Mm -hmm. um, I stand short, a real mouthful. But it involved 400 scientists from 60 countries. It culminated in a 2,500 page report. And the, GM, the, the biotech companies were heavily involved at the early stages. Once they realized that the scientists were not going to be saying the things that they wanted them to say, they stormed out and um, and tried to kill off the report, and the report was still published and it is still available um, uh, available through through the internet. 
And um, it very clearly shows that these 400 scientists from 60 countries believe that GMOs have no role to play in poverty alleviation. And in fact, they said the very last thing you want to do if you want to alleviate poverty is allow people, smallholder farmers in developing countries, to become reliant for their seed on a handful of companies. Mm -hmm. See, for, for, for hundreds of thousands of years, humanity has survived by actually taking natural foods from the environment. Twelve and a half thousand years ago, agriculture begun and um, the domestication of crops begun. And since that time, plant breeding has selected a very small handful of the very wide diversity of foods that were previously consumed by much smaller numbers of people. And, um, and then, of course, as we move from plant breeding techniques and animal breeding techniques that still work within the laws of nature, where genetic material, where DNA is only exchanged by those plants and animals that have evolved to exchange DNA with one another, those are the rules that we work within. And yes, you can still do some pretty um, strange and peculiar things to your food supply in that way using, if you like, natural plant and animal breeding techniques. As soon as you move to a genetic modification technique where you are forcing in a cassette, a piece of genetic material into an unrelated species, you are playing God. And... It is almost that the, the original ideas that developed in the 1980s were based on incorrect principles when they thought, well, if we take a trait that we like, such as herbicide resistance um, in a crop, and we force it in using a gene gun or a soil agrobacterium into your crop plant, it will be great because we'll have that trait expressed in our new genetically modified crop plant. Yeah. What was realized at that time is that once you do that, you actually have a much broader and very unpredictable effect on the genome. And that's why the principle of using a genetic modification technique is one that is really playing with nature in a way that was never intended that can create all sorts of downstream effects. And again, we're seeing plenty of developing data where research has been able to be funded by independent sources. Of course, we're not seeing, we're not tending to see the, the biotech companies ever coming out with any um, research that um, suggests that the technique may be harmful. But um, if we were to utilize the precautionary principle, and again, this is, we're right in the middle of a problem within the EU where they're trying to suggest that there is no cause for concern to use the precautionary principle. If we, if we did use it, we'd have to say, today, let's ban GMOs. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a major issue. And Robert, it sounds to me pretty horrendous, almost like a plant-based Frankenstein's monster in a sense. And it really seems like we're playing with fire in this regard because there isn't any data really to say what could happen, for example, to the human body through long-term GMO consumption. There are question marks hanging over what it could potentially do to our DNA because we have evolved in a particular way and we're not used to these kind of 
monstrous entities being put in our bodies and we really don't know what the effects are but there is an as you say an increasing body of evidence to show that it's not going to be pretty well, there are a wide range of animal studies showing um, effects on uh, fertility, on increased cancer rates, um, effects on lifespan, um, increased inflammation, um, you name it, pretty much every system has been, has been impacted. Um, the, if you look at the human experience, the most peculiar thing that we have to deal with is that governments are now saying, well, let's look to the United States because the first genetically modified crop was planted commercially in the ground in 1996. So we have, um, you know, 16 or so years of experience with people consuming GMOs in the United States of America. And um, what they're saying is, well, we're not seeing people dropping by fly like flies, so it must be okay. Well, Let's backtrack a minute. First of all, there is an example of a GMO technique that was used to manufacture the amino acid tryptophan that was consumed by over 100,000 people over a few years. Um, um, in the, uh, it's now about 20 years ago. And that did culminate in some very severe cases in which actually around about 100 people died. Um, and I've recently come back from doing some work in, uh, in Austin, Texas, and one of the scientists that we've been working with there um, was actually one of the victims of this tryptophan. Okay. And, um, it's fascinating when you talk to him. He's actually the only survivor of the very serious form of of the particular condition that developed from consuming this genetically modified tryptophan that started attacking the lung tissues. And he was literally coughing up lung tissues and was um, presumed to, to die along with, with the others that had a similar condition. Um, and um, by hook or by crook, and actually, um, believe it or not, by taking natural medicines that he was um, actually got a colleague of his to, to make, he managed to... to help sustain himself um, through um, what was a couple of years of extreme sickness. Um, and then it's, you know, he's been, he's now um, almost 70 years old and his health is continuing to improve to the point that he's, he's now able to run um, 10, 12 miles a day um, and is really a picture of, of, of health. So, um, you know, that, that, that is an example of what can go wrong. It was a completely unpredictable effect. Um, secondly, we've got to realize that most of the exposure has been to a very limited number of GM traits. Hmm. The, the, the two most important traits, one is the herbicide resistance from Monsanto that allows um, you to spray Monsanto's own herbicide, glyphosate, or the commercial name Roundup, onto your Roundup-ready crop so that the crop doesn't die, but the weeds do. Um, and, of course, they marketed Roundup as a super-safe herbicide. Now, you know, 20, 30 years on, we're starting to realize, and many of us were re realizing this actually decades ago, that uh, glyphosate is far from safe. But it is a, a system that allows Monsanto to really monopolize um, the whole agro ecosystem because it forces the 
um, farmer not only to buy their own Roundup Ready seeds, but also to use their own herbicide. And um, we're now beginning to see resistance developing to, to Roundup. We're also starting to see um, a range of other impacts. The, the second trait that has been very widely used um, in maize or corn, um, also in cotton, is um, the development of a toxin from a bacteria, Bacillus thuringiensis, that um, is designed to kill um, um, moth pests in particular. And um, so these two traits have been the most common. Um, as soon as we start looking at other traits, the, the first question is, why are they having such difficulty producing other traits? Um, and if you speak to GMO insiders, people who've been working on it, they will tell you because very often some of the traits, when they look at uh, animal experimentations, have been so incredibly harmful, just like the human case with, with, with tryptophan. Uh -huh. These two that have got out there and have been very widely used certainly don't appear to have um, acute short-term effects. But even 16 or 17 years in terms of human lifespan is very short. And it's even more ludicrous to believe that with the potential harmfulness of this technology that, um, the, the, public, that the public in general should be used as the guinea pig for a technology like this. Um, the, the other aspect that we've got to bear in mind is, is this technology, does the science suggest that this technology has real value in solving um, some of the food security issues that we face around the world. And, and again, um, I'd point people back to the ISTAT report that I mentioned earlier. Um, the evidence from these 400 scientists in 60 countries is no. Um, conventional plant breeding and animal breeding um, is what we need to, to, to use. And we need to be much more imaginative about trying to reinstate some level of sustainability within um, the, the so-called developing world to allow people to, to manage their own agroecosystems and not have this, um, if you like, corporate imperialism approach that is really just another extension of the colonization process that, that um, these parts of the world faced and that um, have, if you like, kept them in a situation that, that makes them less competitive with the developing world. And that's one of the staggering things about it, because as you speak, Robert, it sounds more and more to me like this is a control issue. For example, a company like Monsanto, which I think initially was a chemical company and had nothing to do with food. I think they, they were initially made famous in the Vietnam War through providing Agent Orange to the US government. But a company like that, that can genetically modify crops um, so that it becomes resistant, the crops become resistant to their own product and who can then lobby the US government to actually pass it into law that certain states have to use these crops and only these crops and they're not allowed to use natural, natural crops or natural seeds that regenerate themselves. Instead, they have to go and buy the seeds year on year. That's nothing short of a control system that, I mean, if, it, if it's allowed to get out of hand, will dominate the global food supply, which is a dangerous, dangerous thing, in my opinion. Well, absolutely. We, we've now got this very peculiar situation. We're, we're directly involved in the um, California um, ballot campaign to try and get 
compulsory GMO labeling on foods in the state of California. Mm. Um, in the US, we now have a situation that somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of commercially prepared food selling in supermarkets contain GMOs of one form or another. Um, and we've got to realize that the majority of the, wor of the world's soya, um, um, maize, and cotton crops are now GMO. And in fact, all of the primary staples have their GMOs that the biotech companies are desperately um, trying to get in. So if you look at wheat, they now work on GMO varieties. We look at rice, um, which is the staple for most of Asia. Mm -hmm. They're trying to push GMO golden rice um, on, onto Asia so that they can manage a situation where pretty much all of the world potentially is receiving GMOs in all of its diet via the staple. It's a, it's a clever strategy. Second aspect of it is that we have a major issue with contamination. Um, those of us who are interested in trying to manage our health naturally are obviously very interested in not being contaminated by GMOs. We also very often have an interest in organic food. One of the requirements through the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements, IFOM, is that organic food is not GMO. So if you want to ensure that you have um, GMO-free food in the United States, you have to get organic food. Now, when so much of the maize and soya crop, for example, has become GMO, one of the real complications is trying to ensure that you don't have contamination. So um, the, if, if you look at um, examples in Saskatchewan and in Canada, there have been other examples in, in the Midwest and the United States, some of the organic farmers have already started going out of business because they're surrounded by um, GM crops that create a level of contamination that they can't manage in order to carry on selling um, GM. In Europe, we've got a situation where the 0.9% threshold, um, where if you're selling a non-GMO or organic crop, it has to have less than 0.9% contamination by GM. Um, they are lowering that to um, down to a, a less than 0.1% level, which is great in theory, mm -hmm. but it makes it harder and harder to manage and more and more expensive to manage to the point that there is a real risk um, as GMOs become more and more widely used that uh, organic agriculture will really struggle to manage these, these levels of, of contamination and it could be in fact in, in certainly in the area of, for particular staple crops it could be their death knell and um, so in, in, in the United States moving back to California um, Monsanto has unfolded a massive counter campaign to say if you support compulsory GMO labeling um, it's going to have a horrendous effect on the price of food and of course the consumers then got to work out well why does a non-patented non-GMO crop have to cost more than one that comes from the Monsanto stable or the Pioneer Stable, or BASF, any of the small group of, of uh, biotech companies. And the reality is, the answer is, it costs a lot of money to try and
keep your product free of contamination from GM. You then have to produce a whole lot of certification to demonstrate, to prove that it hasn't become contaminated. And what we'd like to see is the whole issue turned on its head because in every other industry, the polluter must pay. And in this situation, it is the, the small group of half a dozen or so biotech companies that are busy contaminating the world with their genetically modified foods. And we, the consumer, and the non-GMO or organic farmer has to pay at the moment to, keep, to, to ensure that those products are free. And that is a ridiculous state of affairs. It's truly incredible. And I think we're fast starting to mimic the US here in Europe. I mean, you mentioned earlier on in our chat, Robert, that the EU has been pretty good to date in supposedly resisting GMO and resisting the advances, I suppose, of the big biotech industries. But that appears to be changing and unfolding on an almost daily basis now. Just to give you an example, which I'm sure you're aware of, um, I'm based in Carlow in Ireland, which is a small town here. But uh, as recently as two or three days ago, Chagask, which is one of the big agricultural research facilities here in the country, have been granted permission to carry out field trials on a genetically modified potato that would improve resistance to blights, supposedly. Now, that's a new departure, certainly for Ireland, and we're seeing this all over the place in Europe. So what can we expect down the tracks for Europe? Why have we, I suppose, in the past been traditionally more resistant to this? And what's changing now that we're becoming more open to it? Is it the pressure and the lobby groups from the big biotechs, or what could it be? I, I think we've got to understand that the, the, it's not the EU that has been um, very concerned about GMOs. It is actually the European citizens. Right. It is only thanks to public opposition that governments have had to do something about it. At an EU level, the EU, particularly if you look at the President Barroso, he, Barroso he's, he's been consistently supporting supporting uh, the, the, the use of GMOs. You now look at um, Daly heading up um, uh, consumers and public health in the European Commission, also massively pro-GMO. Um, they've put in Anne Glover um, as the scientific advisor to the European Commission. She's massively pro-GMO. She's just come out with a statement um, in the last um, 10 days or so, um, talking very specifically to the precautionary principle, which many of us who are extremely concerned about GMOs say, you know, guys, you have the precautionary principle built into European food law. Use it for GMOs. And, of course, they have now have to come up with a, um, an argument for why they don't have to use it because they are saying that the evidence that they have seen suggests there is no difference in any harm caused by either GMO versus um, conventional crops. And, my goodness, they are just looking at very specific data that they choose to look at. They're certainly not looking at the totality of data. Mm. Um, you know, we have um, pointed many to the um, fantastic um, work of Jeffrey Smith, um, Genetic Roulette, um, that um, pulls together um, some 64 um, pieces of evidence demonstrating adverse human health effects, not, not just environmental effects. They're another chapter. They're another book. But, but the human health effects, because ultimately it turns out that... Um, 
governments tend to be so selfish that they are somewhat less concerned about the wider environment than they are about human health. And that's one of the reasons Jeffrey um, pulled all of those data together um, in one place. And it's um, a very accessible book that, that has all the references in it, but also has a, a simplified account for um, the government officials that choose to only look at one page because their attention span is, is tends to not be very great. So we, we've had the public continually resisting. We've, we've seen a situation um, back in 2007, actually, where environment ministers around the EU, 21 of them, voted to support um, um, a safeguard clause that Austria and Hungary were using to, to prevent GMOs being um, cultivated in those two countries because of their long-standing long objection. It turns out that the environment ministers around Europe all objected and went again against the wishes of the European Commission simply because they read the data that the um, Austrians and Hungarians were, were concerned about. Um, so that there's been a huge problem with, with governments being very selective about the data that they want to use to show that there's no difference. We see the same in many other areas of science. Um, the organic food versus conventional food debate is very similar where governments keep on cherry-picking particular evidence using um, studies that have almost been designed, or I should say have been designed, to show no difference between conventionally cultivated and organically cultivated foods. Whereas we know if you look at other data, where you're looking at real organic systems with real living soils using proper cultivation, organic cultivation practices, um, there is a huge difference in the food quality between um, conventionally produced and organically produced foods. But surely, Robert, there are some kind of guidelines that are designed to help the consumer. The consumer shouldn't always be battling against the authority, so to speak. I mean, I hear tell of something called Codex Alimentarius, which I, I think is, is set up to ensure fair trade practices and consumer protection in relation to trade of food globally. Surely these things are here to help us and are designed to do that. Well, Codex um, almost certainly did have um, a, a heartfelt objective of making a positive difference to the world by taking down trade barriers and ensuring that consumers were not harmed in the process back in the early 1960s when it was formed. Mm -hmm. But it is slowly and steadily become this intergovernmental um, decision-making forum for the global food supply that is about putting cheap foods that are made in one part of the world um, into other parts of the world. Um, and if you look at um, the kind of foods that we have in our supermarkets, um, partic particularly the cheaper end of the spectrum, if you like what you see and if you like what that does to your body, well and good, because that's what these guys are, are ensuring for, for our own health and benefit. Um, and the, the difficulty is that um, they are absolutely not concerned about the development of local community systems of agriculture that produce food for local populations, which is, if you like, the absolute converse, the diametric opposite of the kind of glo global food supply system that, we, that we've got today. And um, our concern is that the, this global food supply system 
ends up being focused on ensuring that there is no um, harmful levels of, say, microorganisms, bacteria and fungi pathogens within your food, so you don't transfer foodborne illnesses when you move your lamb from New Zealand to Europe, for example. But at the same time, in doing that, you render the food, um, to a large extent, sterile. You end up killing enzymes in it. You end up zapping it with irradiation. You end up adding, in terms of processed foods, huge amounts of preservatives and additives to ensure that it doesn't contain these pathogens. But you certainly remove the, the life force within that food that you would consume if you were consuming locally produced foods. And one of the reasons that we have this burgeoning epidemic of chronic diseases now not only in the developed world but also in the developing world is because of this kind of dietary simplification where we are consuming more and more processed foods, more and more refined foods. Yes, we're not getting food poisoning as often as we did but this food is killing us slowly. And this is where you get this rather um, worrying uh, collaboration between the food producers and the pharmaceutical companies because the food producers seem to be intent on producing foods that are really not that good for us but at the same time don't kill us acutely and the drug companies that love people to stay alive for a long time rather than die early mm. like them to be in this morbid state, this state of disease and true enough what we're seeing is that all the chronic diseases now are affecting people of a younger and younger age. So we're now seeing children developing obesity at ages that were never even imagined um, a few decades ago. We're seeing heart disease developing in children and young adults. Um, and um, cancer, obviously, incidents still, still rising in, in many respects. And that's very, very worrying. But aren't we lucky, Robert, in that... We have vaccines to prevent so many of these diseases now. Isn't this great, the advance in vaccines? And they're being spread all around the world. Surely that's a good thing. Well, John, you, you play a good devil's advocate there. But um, <laughs> again, I'd, I'd ask people to look at the evidence that there are only a very small number of vaccines where there is potentially some evidence of um, positive effects, um, smallpox polio being two examples. Mm. If you look at the majority of children's illnesses and, you know, um, mumps, measles and rubella being another example, the evidence is very, very thin on the ground. And again, when we look at interventions um, that, that use attenuated organisms, disease organisms that, that don't hopefully don't directly cause disease, but then they're put into a matrix, into a pharmaceutical formulation with other adjuvants and into this cocktail, if you like, including things like mercury. Um, you have, again, unpredictable effects. And even more problematic is the recommended complete vaccine schedule that is being administered to children of younger and younger age yeah. have really no data whatsoever that is able to verify the safety of the vaccine schedule. And of course, 
that's one of the reasons that there's been this um, suggested association for between um, the assault on children with vaccines and the possible um, association with increased incidence of autism. Autism has spiked massively since around about 1988 to 1990 um, and there are no obvious explanations for that um, other than potentially a whole range of factors working hand in hand and um, if you look at uh, the way in which um, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, the, the British doctor that um, published a paper back in 1998 that suggested there may be an association between um, the incidence of autism in 12 patients and this was information communicated by, by the parents actually and the timing of uh, vaccines in the majority of those children he said that that should uh, stimulate further research and of course that created, created such a massive outcry amongst the pharmaceutical industry and uh, resulted in, in uh, Dr. Wakefield being struck off. He's continuing his work with a whole range of other scientists and academics around the world and they're piecing together now this very interesting situation in which vaccines certainly don't appear to be the sole causative agent but they appear to be one factor in many that includes um, the uh, nutritional stress um, placed on children because of in, inadequate diets and um, that may explain the fact that we've got this this autism epidemic and the autism epidemic is a, a social problem that we need to find ways of managing because we now have a situation in Europe where one in 40 boys and one in 125 girls develop autism by the age of three and if you look at the fact that those um, children then won't be able to be um, completely effective members of society and mm -hmm. it has all sorts of connotations on how the social system will, will, will manage them, um, what kind of contributions will be made into social security, um, how taxes will be um, paid, etc., etc. Um, so most of the major health problems that we have at the moment appear to be, if you like, multifactorial. There isn't a single cause to them. They're caused by a whole range of factors. And one of the reasons that more and more people are interested in, in what we call natural health care, the kind of interest that we follow in the Alliance for Natural Health, yeah. because it seems that when you look at a whole range of facets of your life and you start to consume a, a more natural diet, you decide to reduce the amount of food that you buy in the supermarket and instead you start choosing to buy it from local producers um, that, for example, div deliver organic food to you via a box scheme um, where they try and ensure that that food has um, preferably no air miles on it at all and is delivered largely through um, local um, organic agricultural schemes where you choose to become physically more active perhaps than your, your peers and you have a, a regular daily or every other day exercise regime yeah. in to, to improve your health. You choose to consume water 
that is not contaminated by fluoride. You choose and you try and find clean springs or you have um, a, um, a uh, water filtration system in your house that, that cleans up the water and takes things like fluoride and um, chlorine out of the water supply. Um, you choose to work on your emotional state and, and keep yourself out of being a, in a depressed state and popping pills when you get depressed, etc. All of these things can come together um, and it appears that people who live those kind of lives appear to be some of the healthiest members of our society. And of course, they also are the enemy of these corporations because if we choose not to spend our our money, our hard-earned cash with them, their whole businesses just collapse like a house of cards. And this is the thing, and a big, a big source of frustration for me is the constant rabbiting on of the mainstream media about, I suppose, conspiracy theorists and anybody who doesn't toe the line with regard to what the big corporations say should should have a tinfoil hat on and they're just hippies and they're this, that and the other and they throw out all these these words and this rhetoric time and time again. So a lot of people seem to feel pressured into conforming and to literally heading down to the local Tesco or whatever it may, may be, might be and buying chips and chicken nuggets and feeding them to their kids and themselves day in, day out because that's what everybody does, Robert. It's the done thing to do. So what would you say to somebody who might be kind of in that mindset at the moment and is thinking, do you know what, apart from the expense or the, the time or monetary expense of having to go out and source food and to find organic stuff, nobody else is doing it, so it must be okay. What would you say to that kind of apathetic attitude? Well, I would say, you know, take a look at yourself um, in terms of your health. Um, determine whether you wake up in the morning um, feeling fresh to go at the beginning of the day um, probably a good idea to either take all your clothes clothes off and look in a full-length mirror or put your swimsuit on if you prefer and look in a full-length mirror. Check out how you, how you appear physically um, and then work your way around um, a supermarket and have a look at the kinds of foods that are being put in people's trolleys and how the people who have, for example, fill their their trolleys up with um with white bread and uh, you know carbonated drinks how they look so that they can start to understand that empirically there appears to be a pretty strong relationship between people's diets and their lifestyles and if they have friends that have already made the decision to opt out of say buying the majority of their food from supermarkets or have a more if you like, selective approach to buying the healthier foods in supermarkets, um, check that out as well because, um, you know, it's very clear. In fact, there is now um, a, a, a very solid um, amount of, of epidemiological and observational research published in the scientific literature that shows that these relationships are very clear. Um, at the same time, there are there are always some outliers. There are people who can um, eat what to, for the rest of us, is a remarkably unhealthy diet and still appear quite healthy for a large part of their life. Mm. And, um, so, you know, I, I think people have got to take a look at the, the world around them to see what they want to do. And one of the things that I respect about um, um, 
many countries in the world, such as most of Europe, is that it's still to some extent a free world. And if people want to go and buy their foods in the supermarket and they want to buy lots of processed foods, well, that's fine. That, that's, that's their decision. Um, there are others that are choosing not to do that. And again, what, what we would be saying is, is that, um, you know, it, this isn't an issue about conspiracy theory. Um, in fact, um, I think to a large extent, conspiracy theory is a, is a concept that has been developed primarily by the corporations who don't like resistance to what they do. I agree. I, I, I would be uh, one of the first to say that anyone who argues that there isn't a conspiracy, um, let's forget the word theory, but just a conspiracy, is um, is not looking properly at the world around us. Because a conspiracy is simply um, a, a small group of individuals or companies that are working primarily for their own interest against the interest of others. Mm. If you look at, for example, the very recent $3 billion fine that the second largest drug company in the world, the UK's largest drug company, GlaxoSmithKline, has faced um, for alleged fraud. And of course, they have paid out this money to avoid full criminalization, despite, despite the fact that they, their offenses in terms of manipulating data um, to, if you, if you like, ensure that um, people carried on using their drugs that they knew were extremely harmful and would increase risks of heart attacks would it would happen if that's not a conspiracy tell me what is so um there are clearly a wide range of conspiracies going on and um we can either choose to be aware of them or we can bury our head in, in the sand and thank goodness it's a free world well, thank goodness it is, and how much longer that will remain will also remain to be seen, of course. So if, if anybody is listening to this and they're really interested in taking a more active role in helping out and I suppose becoming a voice box or a mouthpiece or spreading the word in what way, what, how can they get involved? Or is there any kind of structure? A lot of people like organizations, this kind of thing. Is there anything for people to get involved with or to attach themselves to so that they can be more proactive with regard to not just their own health, but promoting good health? Well, yes. I mean, the, the, our, our shop window is, is our, our European website, which is www. ANH, which stands for Alliance for Natural Health, so anh-europe.org, org. that's www.anh-europe.org. Um, go there and you'll see 10 different campaigns. You'll also see on the right side of the website, you can sign up for our free e-alerts that we send out every, every Wednesday. Um, that's one pretty good way of, of staying on top of things. For those of you who are into social media, we've got a really active um, Facebook portal um, that you can find um, by going to facebook.com forward slash ANH International to get into our, our, all of our activities that we're running around the world. Um, we also have a, a, our own organization in the United States, so that has a different website, www anh-usa.org um, but between all of those sites you will find a whole range of information and I think one of the most important ways that people can act, we, we do have a get involved 
um, button on our website that can show people a range of ways they can get involved. Um, but one of the most important things that people can do is educate themselves and communicate that knowledge to other people so that those who want to choose to live a natural lifestyle can find ways of doing it in what is an increasingly complex situation because there is so much contamination, there's so much misinformation around. And our fundamental tenet is to operate using the principles of what we call good science and good law. So, um, you know, where we have a particular opinion, you'll find that that, that is always backed up by um, factual data. It may not be the same data that the governments are using because they have chosen to be pretty selective about it. But um, um, our, our primary remit is, is to ensure that people have enough information to be able to make um, selections for themselves, their families, their friends, and communicate that widely. Social media, while it is still relatively open, is also an extraordinarily valuable way of sharing that information far and wide. Mm -hmm. Well, Robert, it's been entirely enlightening speaking to you and hopefully we will check in with you again um, over the next uh, the coming months and we can see what's happening but um, give us that website again the Alliance for Natural Health just so that people can check it out yes the website is www.anh-europe.org and all of us here at Alchemy Radio would strongly suggest that people check it out and of course subscribe to the e-alerts as well most worthwhile Robert fantastic talking to you i'll be very much looking forward to our uh, our next chat and keep up the fantastic work that you're doing it's been really really good having you on alchemy radio i have the power you have the power we have the power dr robert verkirk thank you for joining me today thank you john alchemy radio the greatest form of control is where you think you're free when you're being fundamentally manipulated and dictated one form of dictatorship is being in a prison cell and you can see the bars and touch it. The other one is sitting in a prison cell but you can't see the bars and you think you're free. What the human race is suffering from is mass hypnosis. We are being hypnotized by people like this. News readers, politicians, teachers, lecturers. We are in a country and in a world that is being run by unbelievably sick people. The chasm between what we're told is going on and what is really going on is absolutely enormous. It's like we all know what's going down but no one's saying shit what happened to the home of the brave. These motherfuckers they controlling us now and no one's talking about how they made us fight and be slaves. And everybody's just walking around heading the clouds and won't awaken to a dead in the grave. But then it's too late, we need to be ready to raise up Welcome to the end of day Everybody is slaves, only some are aware That the government releasing poison in the air That's the reason I collect so many guns in my lair I ain't never caught slipping, never underprepared Yeah, they shade sign on me, they just break it proudly George Bush, the grandson of Alistair Crowley They want you to believe the lie that the enemy's Saudi The enemy ain't Saudi, the enemy around me It's fluoride in the water, but nobody know that It's also a prominent ingredient in Prozac For real? 
how could any government be so that? A proud people who believe in political throwback. That's not all that I'm here to present you. I know about the black pope in Solomon's temple. Yeah. About the Vatican assassins and how they will get you. And how they clone Barack Hussein Obama in a test tube. It's like we all know what's going down, but no one's saying shit what happened to the home of the brave. These motherfuckers, they controlling us now. And no one's talking about how they made us fight and be slaves. And everybody's just walking around, heading the clouds. You wanna wake up to a dead in the grave? By then it's too late, we need to be ready to raise up Welcome to the game Whoever the built the pyramids had knowledge of electrical power And you know that that's the information that they suppress and devour Who you sick the motherfuckers that crashed in the tower Who you sick that made it turn into ash in an hour The same ones that invaded your own The ones that never told you about the skeletons on the moon Yeah, the ones that poison all the food you consume The ones that never told you about the Mount Vesuvius tombs The bird flu is a lie, the swan flu is a lie Why would that even come out? a surprise, yeah, the polio vaccine made you die, it caused cancer and it cost a lot of people they lives, do y'all know about Bohemian Grove, how the world leaders sacrifice the children in robes, Lucifer is God in the public school system, I suggest you open up your ears and you listen, it's like we all know what's going down, but no one's saying shit what happened to the home of the brave, these motherfuckers they controlling us now, and no one's talking about how they made us fight and be slaves, and everybody's just walking around, heading the clouds I wanna wake up to a dead in the grave By then it's too late, we need to be ready to raise up Welcome to the end of days The greatest hypnotist on planet Earth Is a oblong box in the corner of the room It is constantly telling us what to believe is real If you can persuade them That what they see with their eyes is what there is to see because they'll laugh in the face of an explanation that portrays the bigger picture of what's happening. And they have. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?